What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekend edition of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. On today's episode, Real Vision Managing Editor Samuel Burke sits down with former Special Economic Assistant to President George W. Bush, Pippa Malmgren. They discuss how the geopolitics of Russia, Ukraine, and the United States could impact global markets and what the new form of quantitative easing looks like. Check it out. Pippa, the reason I really wanted to talk to you as well is because you and I were in Las Vegas at the takeover event uh, for Real Vision in November, and you really called this to a T. What you said about what to look for in 2022 now sounds extremely prophetic. Before we talk about the effect that this could have on the markets, I really just want to take a step back and, and really ask you, how did we get here? Is this just simply Putin not liking the the West, having increasing power. He wants that buffer around the former Soviet Union. And is he just testing a, a new U.S. president? Tell us how, in your view, we got to this point. Yeah. And by the way, Samuel, you know, at the Real Vision event, you asked me and several others on stage, what was the word we predicted for the year um, 2022? And I remember I hesitated. I really hesitated. And I eventually I said NFT. But the reason I hesitated is because I was thinking the word is going to be war. But it was such a good party and the word is so upbeat. I didn't want to, you know, like land that on everyone. And this is part of the problem and why I decided to start writing about this recently, because it has to land at some point that this is for real. And it's not a bluff. It is there are real events occurring and people are not seeing them because they're only focused on Ukraine. And Ukraine is only one piece of a very large puzzle. There are all kinds of events happening across Scandinavia and other parts of Western Europe. So bottom line is um, there are going to be multiple interpretations of what's driving this. In my own view, Putin has long, uh, long expressed his deep frustration that the border states keep being pulled into NATO. I think he could live with neutrality, but he can't live with border states being NATO members because for him, that's like the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's also the interpretation that he's just taking advantage of the fact that we have a president right now who looks disinclined to respond in any way. And there's a limited window of opportunity from his point of view to act because Congress is about to go Republican again, and then it looks like we're going to face um, the p real possibility of Donald Trump running for the presidency again. And he's likely to be a lot more belligerent than the current president. So there's a whole bunch of drivers. I've only named some of them for why this is happening now. Another time frame that people have talked about is the equipment that Russia has only really working when the ground is frozen in Ukraine. And that that time frame is February to March are, are literally things on the ground. I mean, on the ground also driving what we're seeing right now. So I don't buy this. And and hmm. again, I've been recently writing on Substack and I pointed out that we're seeing a lot of uh, Russian amphibious vessels in the Baltic Sea now. They are around the critical islands that uh, are at the mouth where you transfer from the Baltic into the North Sea. And those are literally amphibious landing vessels. So they can rock up with a battalion of troops, let's call it 500 special ops people, um, in minutes. So yeah, ground hard, not hard. This is not the point. The second thing is this is 
this is a little bit like, and I'm going to make the analogy for the Real Vision audience. So we make fun of people who are TradFi because we're all DeFi, right? So now I'm going to make fun of people who think in traditional military terms that they're going to be tanks that roll over a border. Not necessarily. This is a world where militaries everywhere have pushed a lot of their operations off balance sheet. Uh, both the U.S. and Russia have now got privatized armies. In the U.S., we have Academy, which used to be known as Blackwater. In Russia, not that they're exactly the same kind of thing because they're not, but in Russia, you have the Wagner Group. So, again, when you start counting how many troops, how many Russian troops are on the Ukrainian border, I'm like, how many Russian um, military officials are already in the West somewhere, but they're not wearing a uniform? But that doesn't mean they don't work for a boss. It's basically uh, Putin's private army. And so this business of thinking about how a military incursion will look is so old fashioned. The, the right way, in my opinion, to think about this is what we've had, I think, for months is a lot of space warfare going on, which the public can't see. And there's very little in the public domain about it. But we most recently, only a few weeks ago, saw that the cable, the Internet cable that connects pretty much every satellite that's less than 500 miles high to Earth is in a place called Svalbard in Norway. It's the fastest internet cable in the world in the middle of nowhere. The International Space Station depends on this cable. It's a double cable and one of the two cables was suddenly cut. And it wasn't just like in one place, like a mile and a half of it is suddenly missing. Now that was interpreted in the West as a very serious and deliberate act. And the new chief of the defense forces in the United Kingdom, who's an admiral, came out and said this could be interpreted as an act of war. So we've had a lot going on. It's just the public is only able to catch up now because it's gotten, I think, a little bit beyond what militaries can control themselves. And so now they're starting to have to alert the public this is real and things have been happening for a while that you might not have been aware of. And one thing that you've been so vocal about in your writing, in your speeches, is the cyber warfare going on. And of course, uh, many, many uh, governments have att uh, attributed what happened in Ukraine previously uh, with many types of connections from Internet connectivity to electricity, uh, attributed that to the Russians. What have you been seeing play out there, not just in, in, in those big cables that you're talking about in Norway? Well, again, there's it's a lot of activity in the Baltics. Um, in Sweden, we've seen uh, drones flying over nuclear facilities and the private residence of the king and queen of Sweden. Um, the Danes and the Swedes are so worried about um, a Russian uh, incursion into their physical territories that they have put tanks and troops on the island of Gotland, which is... Again, in that space in the Baltic, the Russians have to pass to get to the West. Um, Gotland is a very ancient military garrison. It's always had tremendous strategic importance. And what we've been seeing now for probably the last five years is a huge amount of submarine activity uh, in that part of the world. And of course, the suspicion is that it was a submarine that cut the internet cables. 
and we've had more than one of, of this cable cutting exercises in recent years. Um, it wasn't it was only a year ago, in fact, that a British um, British military vessel got into a tangle with a Russian submarine that it was trying to track. Um, and the only reason it became public is because there was a camera crew on the HMS Northumberland. So basically, you've got NATO vessels trying to track Russian submarines, and they wouldn't be doing that if there weren't any Russian submarines. So I've been seeing a world where most of this military action is exactly where the public can't see it. So I've referred to it as a hot war in cold places. So it's happening in space, in cyberspace, on the high seas, right? This is not about land and army territorial operations. This is about Navy. And this is a big transition. We've been in a world where it's been the army that we've been focused on, but now the Navy. And it's been submarines. And it's also been in places the media gives a cold shoulder to, like Africa. And there's an enormous hap amount happening with um, Russians in Africa as well. This is not at all restricted to Europe, let alone just Ukraine. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Pippa, the first part of 2022, it felt like the U.S. was only talking about sanctions, but Russia has somewhat signaled that they're sanctions uh, proof. Now, whether that's true or not is one question, but really what I want to focus on is the fact that the U.S. has said, well, we'll figure out ways around that, um, not the traditional uh, sanctions. We'll go to semiconductors, not just semiconductors made in the United States. We'll stop semiconductors with U.S. patents from being sent in. We'll cut off consumer electronic goods. It, will that hurt the Russian economy? And will that hurt the global market? So again, the way to answer this is to step back for a moment. So in my opinion, first of all, Russia is not acting alone. We are now seeing Russia and China acting in concert. And so when you talk about chips, for example, we have this recent situation in Lithuania where uh, the Lithuanians recognize Taiwan and chip production is occurring in Lithuania and the Chinese totally shut down all exports from that country to China. And so this is very consistent with how the Russians and Chinese view modern warfare, which is there are no limits that anything goes. It's all usable. So commercial sanctions it wouldn't, we won't be the ones to commence that. That's already begun. Um, and again, what I'm fearing is that people are so myopically focused on Ukraine, they're not understanding how this is going to roll, which is, in, I, in my opinion, you're going to see Russian action and Chinese action at the same time. And it will be military and it will be commercial and it will be financial 
it, it's literally all things simultaneously, which frankly is the one thing the U.S. and NATO are totally unprepared for. Having two fronts at once is already tricky. Having it spread across not just military, but commercial. And so this is a, a whole different way of looking at the field of action than you're going to get from traditional media, I think. Well, it's interesting because you're talking about NATO preparedness and conventional wisdom has been that NATO's not going to react here because Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So has the conventional wisdom changed in, in the past week? Uh, no, but it is very important to note that uh, only a few months ago, NATO added a new category to an Article 5 trigger. So just to remind everybody, Article 5 is the section of the NATO treaty that requires that if one is attacked, all the rest will come to their aid. So never before was um, were space and cyberspace incidents included. Now they are. So actually, technically, I think we have already triggered Article 5, but they don't want to say that. Because the one thing is clear, I don't think any of these parties want to actually end up in physical conflict. Or I should be clear, in visible physical contact. Mm. They um, are perfectly fine if it's all happening in space, which again, the public can't see, and then it can be very kinetic. And we've had a number of incidents where um, the Chinese used a satellite to um, attack debris in space, but they define debris uh, to include American satellites. So that created some incidents. And the Russians used their satellites to actually create a debris field which turned out to be um, so severe that even the International Space Station astronauts almost had to evacuate. So we are having, I think, space warfare. It technically triggers Article 5. They just don't want to say that because nobody wants to end up in an outright conflict. So this is about, it's kind of like two gangs taunting each other. Right. The problem is that the more they do it, the greater the risk that it gets out of their control. And these are all things that you've actually said on Real Vision before at Real Vision events. The, the, the thing I really want to know is what's Putin likely to do then? Most people think that a full invasion is unlikely. Uh, maybe an occupation of the Russian speaking parts of Ukraine maybe more cyber attacks. What do you see as the most likely course of action in the coming weeks and months? Or do you think it will just stay in the areas that you were just talking about, that every effort will be made uh, by leaders to keep it up in space and, and not be visible? Though it's looking more and more visible. We see those Russian troops building up at the border with Ukraine. We see the message from the Pentagon uh, about preparing 8,500 tr troops, putting them on alert. Where is this going? Yeah, so uh, we could talk about a bunch of scenarios. I'll just give you the one that I personally think uh, is increasingly likely. And that is this. We will all be watching Ukraine, but the real focus of Russia's attention is the Suwaki Gap. And for those who don't know the Suwaki Gap, this has been the number one most vulnerable pinch point 
as far as NATO is concerned, for many decades. And it's the space between Kaliningrad, which is a Russian, uh, I keep saying enclave, but people keep correcting me, it's an exclave. But the point is, it's Russia owns territory in Western Europe, and it is called Kaliningrad, and it sits um, on the Baltic. And it's only 64 miles to Belarus. So that 64 mile gap is called the Suwaki Gap, and that has been the number one focus for NATO literally for decades. Today, I believe that remains the number one focus, even though most nobody has ever heard of the Suwaki Gap. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if what Russia is doing is building up their capability in Kaliningrad, in Belarus, in the Baltic. And while we're all watching Ukraine, they take control of that Suwaki gap. And then suddenly, Belarus and Kaliningrad are connected. And remember, Kaliningrad is the where the Russian naval fleet is also based in Western Europe. And this would literally cut off Scandinavia. And that is why everyone in Scandinavia is getting very nervous and starting to deploy troops and tanks um, in their countries. And I think at the same time, we're going to see a scenario in Asia, which is everybody is watching Taiwan, but the real action is at the 38th parallel in Korea, on the Korean Peninsula. And for those who haven't been paying attention, we have recently seen North and South Korea formally end the war, uh, begin the reconciliation and if those two are no longer at war, if the armistice is now fully over, then why do we have 30,000 American troops defending South Korea from the north on the 38th parallel? Answer, they're not required. And what Russia and China both want is to get those 30,000 out of there. And if they can succeed at that, then it becomes much easier for them to push for other things. Like the Russians have been really pushing for control of the Kuril Islands and other islands in the in the um, uh, in the Pacific in the in the China Sea, South China Sea. Like the Chinese have been pushing for islands and control. So I just think it's literally a situation where we're watching the wrong stuff. You see things on a lot of fronts and certainly fronts that a lot of mainstream media are not covering. Part of it is the short attention span of the audience. Part of it's the short attention span uh, of much of the media. The front where I really want to focus now, Pippa, uh, and John, your other expertise uh, as an uh, economist and as an astute observer of markets is the markets front. Uh, I live here in Europe. We've already felt the squeeze from natural gas prices coming from Europe, uh, coming from Russia, of course. Uh, could uh, an increased or more volatile situation uh, at the Russia-Ukraine border send Europe into a recession? I mean, I was just making a list with some of the Real Vision editors. You've got uh, the Black Sea region, one of the biggest growers of wheat. Ukraine, a huge exporter of corn. Uh, the U.S. and Europe both have loan exposure to, to Russia. What's the What could be the impact on markets here? So again, if we go to my more extreme scenario, right, let's uh, for a moment move away from tanks roll over a border into Ukraine, because in that scenario, frankly, it would be the second time we've seen it, right? They've already done it once. And my guess is the markets will literally not react. 
they they didn't react before. They're shrug. not going to react now. It's a shock. The bigger scenario is that you end up with what I've described, which is Scandinavia is now in a more precarious position. And the Russians have a physical foothold that runs from Kaliningrad into Belarus, into Ukraine, and then through all the other Russian exclaves uh, all the way to Transnistria, which again, nobody will have heard of, but there are lots of these little pockets of Russian presence on that Eastern European border. And so if they connect the dots between all of them, then suddenly the border of Russia will have moved west effectively. And that will have enormous implications for value in Scandinavia, uh, in a number of Eastern European countries. But the question is, will the market get this? Will the market even notice? Will the White House do anything about it? And the answer is, President Biden's already been crystal clear. He basically said, well, we wouldn't respond to a small incursion. What's the definition of small? And what if the public doesn't even realize what has happened in the way I'm describing? Because as you said, the mainstream media is not reporting this, um, which I find kind of amazing. Basically, could you have these events occur and have the market go, yeah, you could. And similarly, in Asia, if it reached a situation where the U.S. was effectively forced to withdraw the troops from the 38th parallel, and China and Russia now had a lot more influence in that region, would the markets really respond? I suspect the market response is going to be, well, that's that means there's less risk going forward. This was the risk. Then it happens. You know, and uh, here's the fundamental question. Are there any American families and households that are going to support spilling treasure or blood for Ukraine or Belarus or Lithuania? And I wish you could say the answer is yes, but I honestly think the answer is no, because most Americans won't even know where Lithuania is, which is shocking but true. And same thing, will they care about North and South Korea and be willing to defend South Korea from a, from peace talks? No, no one will be willing. So basically the White House won't be able to do very much about any of this. All they're trying to do right now by positioning those very few people up on the borders is to create a tripwire that will slow the Russians down. It's not designed to fight the Russians. It's just designed to slow down overt reach. The question I've been wanting to ask you all day long is how much is the exposure in Europe versus the exposure in the United States? But given the answer that uh, you just gave me, it sounds like you're saying it's certain parts of Europe have a lot more exposure than maybe the rest of, of Western Europe. And I'm wondering, do you think that some of the psychological impact could be stronger than than the economic impact, particularly in those Scandinavian regions that you're talking about? Well, look at the head of the, the of the German Navy has just had to resign because he publicly said, well, Ukraine belongs to the Russians anyway. Like, like historically, it is theirs. And that led to a firestorm where he's lost his job. But frankly, a lot of Germans are of this opinion. 
and that you should be respectful of Russia instead of doing what we've done ever since the Soviet Union fell apart, which is to treat Russia as um, a kind of rinky-dinky little country with a small GDP. And that has always uh, been a source of outrage for the Russians. They do view themselves as a superpower. We do view them fundamentally as a superpower given their nuclear capability. But we have treated them in international affairs as a kind of, um, you know, like a lost child who lost the fight, right? Capitalism won, communism ended, Russia's just a little country. It doesn't have any power. Well, it turns out maybe that wasn't right. So we have to remember in Western Europe, they may be NATO allies to the United States, but philosophically and pragmatically, there are many Europeans who think that we've been over aggressive reaching into Russian territory or creating, as I said, a kind of Cuban missile crisis environment for Russia. It's not surprising they're responding. And frankly, they own a lot of this territory. By the way, this particularly unnerves the Swedes and the Scandinavians because they're very aware that Putin's focus is not on the restoration of the Soviet Union. It is on the restoration of the Russian Empire. And at one point um, in the 1700s, all of Scandinavia was under Russian control. So everyone in the Baltics and Scandinavia is deeply unnerved by what's happening. But their voice in the international media is obviously virtually zero. I mean, how can you be deploying tanks in Sweden and Denmark and have it not be in the news? Pippa, so many people are taking risk off the table right now. You have people unwinding stock and crypto plays. Could this, it's hard to know what to call it, given the, the context that you're giving, a, giving us, a skirmish, uh, uh, event, um, potential physical conflict, more likely space conflict uh, or, or spaces that we're not traditionally thinking of. Could whatever happens be a straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of the market? Uh, my own opinion is it's likely to be the other way around, that we have these geopolitical events and everybody goes, okay, but maybe that's okay. Like they, they, they concede the, the situation uh, and the countries involved are too far away or too insignificant for um, the average person in the market to understand why this matters. Um, you know, and I come from a family that's Swedish and Danish. So, so it's really hard to say, well, you know, the U.S. and NATO might go. And after all, remember, those countries aren't in NATO. They're in Nordefco. And Nordefco yeah. is the new strategic alliance that was created only a few years ago to deal with the fact that they weren't in NATO and didn't have any protection. So, but again, if you ask the average American, you're gonna do anything to protect the Nordefco countries, everyone's gonna go, what? They don't know what it is. So I, I am not as bearish about these geopolitical events being the straw that breaks the camel's back. In fact, again, quite the opposite. If we end up in a situation where the US withdraws from uh, the Korean Peninsula. And frankly, these events would begin to lead you towards the U.S. 
further drawing down its presence in Germany and Western Europe, most Americans are going to say, good, what were we doing there anyway? We should have been out of there years ago. So it could be that the end result, the one that I'm betting on right now, is it might get bumpy a little bit for a while, and then actually you'll get a rally after all this. Well, and I wanted I wanted that to be the closing question really was have the events or rather maybe the declarations of the past few weeks changed your outlook for 2022? It sounds like it hasn't. I think you've talked about a, a bumpy first half and, and maybe a rally in the second half. Is that what you're reaffirming right there, Pippa? Yeah. Um, again, I would go back in history and say, when you throw that much cash into the world economy through quantitative easing, through record low interest rates for such a prolonged period of time, you have built up an enormous amount of cash that is sitting in the world economy. Now we have some inflation, and that means that cash value is being eroded, just like an acid erodes something. And so people will look at this geopolitics, they'll go, hmm, is this really you know, the end of the world? Is this the beginning of a World War III? I have argued that it is, but World War III is not like World War I and World War II. World War III can happen completely out of the public view and has done so to date. It can happen with fierce confrontations in places like space, subsea submarines doing Hunt for Red October kinds of stuff. But as long as you don't know about it, you don't care. And so I suspect after these events, all sides are going to say, let's retreat into the domains the public cannot see. And in that world, then the public's going to go, I still have a ton of money. I got to put it somewhere because inflation is biting at my ankles. And we're not entering the kind of World War III that we used to have, the kind of World War we used to have. So they'll come back into the markets. So this is why I, it's strange. You know, it's kind of like living in a quantum reality where multiple things can happen simultaneously. You can, like I've argued for a long time, you can have a world where there's incredible recovery going on and some people are experiencing the worst um, losses of their lifetime. This can happen at the same time. We can see a world where we're effectively entering a new kind of world war and the markets go up. I'll give you just one last little piece on that. Don't forget, where is the new quantitative easing? Defense spending. That's where it is. And what is it being spent on? It's being spent on supercomputers, quantum computers, and why? Because in a world where it's all about uh, cyberspace, where it's all about breaking the other side's codes, and I don't mean just nuclear codes, although that's relevant. I mean the genetic code. I mean, behavioral codes. In that world, that kind of spending on those things is still giving us quantitative easing impact. And it's giving us a lot of spinoffs as well that are going to be very valuable for the private sector, just like the NASA spinoffs from the 60s and the 70s. So will markets keep betting on technological innovation? Yeah. And this defense spending as QE actually accelerates that. Wow. 
Pippa Malgram, you always provide a unique, thoughtful, and sobering assessment of global affairs and the markets. You have a series right now that's running uh, part of Real Vision's uh, visionary series that's incredibly insightful as well. Your interview with John Cropper really caught my attention, talking about how companies uh, really build stories, and that's more important than even the products they build sometimes. So I'd encourage everybody to watch that on the Real Vision Plus tier. Go and subscribe there if you haven't already. Pippa, thanks so much for your time, and we look forward to seeing you back here on Real Vision. Thank you. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.